Hey friends, welcome to Happy Tears. I'm Brandon. And I am Nick, and this is Happy Tears, a podcast where two sensitive boys talk about the art that they love so much so that it often brings them to tears. Put some stank on it. Today on the podcast, Brandon... In order to do a good podcast, you have to be honest and unmerciful. Agree? Mm, agree. <laughs> the 20th anniversary of Cameron Crowe's Almost Famous was on September 13th, and so this seemed like the perfect time to revisit a film that I know for me, I had a general fondness for, but personally, I'd just forgotten how great so much of it is. Brandon, it's all happening. Mm. It's all happening. This is Happy Tears. Nice. As always on Happy Tears, which is the podcast you're listening to, we start with our personal Happy Tear moments of the last week or so. Brandon, give me something. Uh, so my Happy Tears for the week uh, were a few musical moments. First, there's a new song called Campfire by an artist uh, named Kevin Morby, who I like a lot, and this happened. I was in the pool by myself, and a part of the song comes Sad around. Sad and lonely. <laughs> yes, and a part of the song song comes around and goes, uh, "Where have all my friends gone? And where did all my friends go?" And by myself, I felt it deeply, particularly <laughs> because of the situation we're all in, and seeing our friends much less than usual. Yeah, the way he delivers it, really great. Felt an emotional connection there. Secondly, there is an artist named Adrian Linker. She's the lead singer of the band Big Thief. Oh, cool. uh, one of my favorite songwriters. And she's got a nice little track called Anything. And it's just her and some uh, really kind of warm, cozy instrumentation. And you kind of want to just wrap up in a ball with the track. She's got some new music coming around the corner, so... I'm excited about it, but I love some cozy tracks in the fall and winter time. And lastly, is this really amazing track called The Dreamer by an artist named Emmanuel Wilkins. He's a 22-year-old alto sax player signed a blue note. Yeah, I wasn't really aware of this release. I think it was an August release of this album. The song just popped up on a playlist and kind of stopped me in my tracks, but the title of that one is called The Dreamer. And um, it says so much with the instrumentation and the uh, kind of the melody in the in the song that was really touching. So highly recommend that song. That's great. So uh, more than usual there, but it's know. an emotional time. <laughs> so you get a pass. Uh, yeah. So it kind of caught me by surprise. But um, oh, you know. look at you. Yeah. So my happy tears moment of the last week is a moment that has occurred in my life a number of times there was just one particular song I think we all have a handful of songs maybe that just like an arrow to the heart just get at a part of your soul that maybe no other thing no other song does or few other songs do and uh, there is a local artist a guy a native of Fort Worth named Garrett Owen you and I are both a big fan of him Yes, And he has a song on his 2016 release 
It was a self-titled album. There's a song called Caught Me By Surprise. The first time I heard it was live in person, and I cried then, and I have cried a number of times (laughs) since listening to it, and I just happened to listen to it earlier this week, and it just destroys me every time. So Caught Me By Surprise by Garrett Owen was a a nice little moment for me this week. Speaking of Garrett, he's a he's a great dude and he just released an album called Quiet Lives today when we're recording this. So go check that out if you're listening. He's he uh is a good dude and he put out a good album. So he's legitimately my favorite songwriter and that includes Fiona Apple and John Mayer and the people that we talk about on this podcast. I think he is just like a savant. He's some kind of genius and uh, his style, the way he finger picks the guitar, the, his kind of the raw grittiness of his lyrics. I just I just think he's he's so incredibly talented. So, yeah, super recommend getting into all his stuff. Well, lovely. So we had all music, which is nice because we've got a, uh, a nice music-related movie coming up here. Yes, we do and i'm so excited to talk about this more excited than i thought i was gonna be (laughs) that's always nice yeah so let's dive into almost famous you know they're gonna try to corrupt you you know and you got an honest face and they're gonna tell you everything but you cannot make friends with the rock stars if you're gonna be a true journalist you know a rock journalist you first you never get paid much but you will get free records from the record company (laughs) fucking nothing about you that is controversial man God, it's going to get ugly, man. They're going to buy you drinks. You're going to meet girls. They're going to try to fly you places for free, offer you drugs. And I know it sounds great, but these people are not your friends. You know, these are people who want you to write sanctimonious stories about the genius of rock stars, and they will ruin rock and roll and strangle everything we love about it. You know, because they're trying to buy respectability for a form that is gloriously and righteously dumb. You know, and you're smart enough to know that. And the day it ceases to be dumb is the day it ceases to be real, right? And then it just becomes an industry of cool. Almost Famous is a semi-autobiographical rock and roll story about a 15-year-old journalist who, in a series of unlikely events, ends up writing a cover story for Rolling Stone magazine about a fictional band in the 1970s called Stillwater. The movie is largely based on the director Cameron Crowe's actual experiences covering bands like the Allman Brothers Band and others as a young journalist in the 70s himself. And so it is a film that is clearly very personal and has uh, such a love of music, just like we do, and a love of journalism, and is really just a a lovely film that is kind of warm and cozy in a lot of ways. Yeah, I think the first big surprise is something you just mentioned was I, I, when I had, you know, I'd seen this probably twice. Um, and I remember liking it, uh, but I just, there's a lot that I didn't know about it or even didn't remember about it since the last time I saw it. And one thing I, I didn't realize was just Cameron Crowe's connection to this story and that the semi autobiographical nature of it was kind of new to me. And there's some, some videos that were kind of celebrating the 20th anniversary of this. He, he shared some of the, the particular links and some of the moments that, you know, you found in the film that related to his own story or, or people he knew and stuff like that. This is one of those movies that like for me, I saw and I liked, and especially as a teenager, 
you know, certain things like the the high school party where where they go to, and like <laughs> him doing drugs and jumping off the roof of you know I'm a golden <laughs> god, all that stuff resonated with me a lot when I was younger. <laughs> I am a golden god. <laughs> and then of course there's the tiny dancer scene is is kind of iconic at this point. I would say right. I remember it being on like TBS and TNT a lot, and you know watching a scene or two, but. I know I've I'd seen the whole thing at some point, but I kind of lumped it in with like a handful of movies that just gets played on cable a lot. I tend to sometimes look down on films like that, even though yeah, that has nothing to do with the quality of a movie at all. Yeah, um, uh, and so I I really was pleasantly surprised with how much of this movie resonated with me so much now that I'm like, you know, in my thirties and, and not a little baby boy anymore. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think a great place to start is talking about the performances, uh, here because there were several that I either didn't appreciate when I first saw it, or I just honestly even forgot about, but there's a lot of really great performances and yeah, I'd love to start with, um, Old uh, Phil Hoffman. Uh, so I mean, as, this is my as first. Lester Banks. Yeah, yeah. So he's playing a Lester Banks was a real guy that uh, he was the editor of Cream magazine and uh, was kind of this intense music critic. I guess I don't know a ton about him. He just seems kind of like a grumpy nerd. It's <laughs> <laughs> probably right. But we talk about happy tears. Like I, I cried in like the first five minutes of this movie because just seeing. Philip Seymour Hoffman, who I was an actor I, I had always liked, but like super didn't appreciate while he was alive. And I mean, not enough, I don't think, you know, and, and yeah. now that he's gone, of course, just just seeing how fucking great he is any time he shows up. Yeah, even even these just kind of small roles or even roles that are significant, but, um, you know, he doesn't have a ton of screen time with. He just is pitch perfect in so many things and uh, definitely definitely here as well and he shot this you know only over a couple of days all of his scenes and he was apparently sick with the flu the whole time he was just such a gift man and i love i love his character as this kind of first of a string of mentors for uh william our our main character the 15 year old journalist right Mm -hmm. he's the first to kind of take this kid under his wing as a fellow journalist gives him an assignment tells him he's a good writer like you know gives him like positive reinforcement teaches him a little bit about life in this like there's that early diner scene where he he's kind of like he's waxing poetic about rock and roll a little bit talking about how it's dead already it sucks that you're here now no your writing is uh damn good it's just a shame you missed out on rock and roll it's over over it's over i mean you got here just in time for the death rattle last gasp last grope at least I'm here for that. But still kind of lives through some of what William's doing in a way, which I find really fascinating about their their relationship. And and so there's like definitely that mentorship there, like you said, along with several other characters in the, the film. But it's like he gets to kind of relive some of this, um, I don't know, magic of touring and stuff through William and, and teach him the, the ways in certain in parts. But yeah, and and so I, I love that. I really, uh, to be honest, completely forgot. I had forgotten everything in the first like 20 minutes of this movie leading up to when he gets the assignment and goes 
and meets up with Stillwater for the first time. Like that's what I remember as like the beginning of the movie. And yeah. so everything with Zoe Deschanel, the older sister character, had completely forgotten about. Me too, totally. And funny enough, you said that just seeing Philip Seymour Hoffman was was an instant happy tear for you. Early on, my first kind of you know happy tear close call was Anita is her name, I think. Her character's interaction with uh, her younger brother William and kind of the mentorship role she plays just with a couple of scenes and actions because she heads off to do her own thing, but she gifts her records to. William for him to go on this path of discovery and kind of fall in love with these records. Because we haven't mentioned this yet, but Frances McDormand plays this um, kind of really protective, overbearing mother who wants the best for her kids, but is um, very strict. And and so they're not allowed to listen to certain kinds of music in the house. So he's introduced to these things and you kind of see this um, really kind of intimate gift between Zoe's character giving her her little brother these things to to cherish and I just I remember specifically different times throughout my life that I've shared music with my little brother and given records and things like that and they've been really special moments and some of our favorite moments together so it was like that side of it makes me emotional so it was yeah, that's uh, really beautiful I think it's cool because it's a very small part of the film but it makes a big difference in his life and stuff and I love that line when she kind of finally takes off and leaves the house and does her own thing. She like grabs him by the shoulders, bends down, looks in his eyes and says, one day. One day, you'll be cool. Look under your bed, it'll set you free. That's such a cool thing to say to your kid, yeah. brother, I feel like. I love the framing of that too and right up close with the bright blue eyes <laughs> right and whether or not he actually is cool one day well we'll, we'll talk about that later <laughs> right but even you know you can't talk about almost famous without talking about kate hudson's penny lane because she's just such an intrinsic part of this movie and from the moment she's on screen it's at this you know the ramp scene is what i guess they call it and it's when william first dives into this fantasy world of rock and roll and she kind of steps out into her light, right? Like a like it's like a theater performance or something. Yeah. And she just kind of like glows like an angel. These women are groupies. They call themselves band-aids. We are not groupies. This is Penny Lane, man. Show some respect. Groupies sleep with rock stars because they want to be near someone famous. We're here because of the music. We are band-aids. She used to run a school for band-aids. We don't have intercourse with these guys. We support the music. We inspire the music. We're here because of the music. She's kind of like this den mother, you know, to the other women around them. And immediately, you know, William gets turned away from interviewing Black Sabbath, which is what he was sent there to do by Lester Bangs. Can't get in. And the first person that tries to help him and take him under their wing is Penny Lane. And she kind of serves throughout this whole movie as this uh, fairy godmother is totally not the right... (laughs) (laughs) But she like she she's like an older sister that he also is is interested in. You know, it's like a weird um, it's a weird dynamic of of mentor, big sister slash crush. Right, and it's great. Yeah, no, I think she I think Kate Hudson plays the role 
so well. And and we'll talk about some of the, I don't know, kind of what her character might represent in the, the movie. But yeah, I just, I think that she's great and really kind of a centerpiece through the whole movie. And I really do love the guidance that she gives along the way and kind of this kind of mystique that she has. There, Yeah, there might be some problematic things around her or her, her character, but I, I, for the most part, I, I like the, the role that she plays in the movie, right? Yeah, I think it's imperfect, but a general positive for the movie. She is great. And, you know, we were looking at her IMDb page, and I think, I mean, this is maybe her best performance. I love her in this movie. I've got a lot of love for How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days also, but... Got a lot of love. <laughs> but, uh, no, she's so great. Um, I love her <laughs> dynamic with William throughout this whole movie. This whole movie, I I think the script is really great, and I think that there's a ton of really good like one-liners or just like very insightful pieces of dialogue or very philosophical pieces of dialogue. A lot of those come from either Philip Seymour Hoffman or Kate Hudson. And it's great. And that's where when you talk about this mentorship thing, like William is a 15-year-old kid out here as a journalist taking notes on everything and he's just absorbing as much as he can from all of these different people. With those like more philosophical bits, they are always or they're typically directed at at William. You could just kind of see it in his facial expressions. <laughs> he doesn't have a ton to um you know, he's seeking something. He he's obviously he's very young in this situation and he's so yeah, I appreciate the the discovery element in all of this. Um I feel like he's going through a lot of self-discovery through these things, but also um, he's discovering new parts of a life and and really just music and his more of his love for for music. So right, that all really starts when his sister gives him the records, right? Like that's his. You know, there's that great montage where he's like touching all the record covers like with his hands and stuff. And right, and it's I, like a, it's like the way someone would uh, graze their hand over a really nice sports car or something. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. Uh, in the same way. But yeah, and and like you were saying, Russell comes and becomes a little bit of that and throughout their kind of relationship, which uh, we learned in one of those videos of where Cameron Crowe's talking to Rolling Stone magazine, just taking out certain items that, you know, were related to the movie and going back and thinking 20 years later, back on the film and he was saying that that whole relationship was kind of based on his this specific interview he's trying to get with Greg Allman right yeah um and the Allman Brothers band and so it was just cool to hear about that being modeled after that kind of uh you know chasing the that interview it's funny that Philip Seymour Hoffman in in one of their first exchanges is like don't make friends with these rock stars you've got to be honest and unmerciful you have to make your reputation on being Honest and uh, you know, unmerciful. Honest, unmerciful. Yeah, if you get into a jam, you can call me. But he really mm-hmm. is kind of looking for the approval of the cool rock star guitarist pretty much the whole movie. Right. Um, and then, even just to round out the mentor thing, like he gets that job with Rolling Stone. 
and doesn't spend a lot any real time with Ben Fogg Torres, the the editor of Rolling Stone, but he does, you know, that guy becomes his boss and at least once chews him out over the phone the way a, a disappointed dad would. <laughs> so <laughs> there's right. just a lot of that. And and that really resonated with me just because I am the oldest of three. I was a kid that never had a like older brother or someone I had a very present father in my life unlike this character but I I didn't have like a cool older brother or anything like that and I kind of always wanted that so I really see this kid searching for something like that and finding it in so many of these characters yeah absolutely um speaking of chewing out over the phone (laughs) Frances McDormand is so good in this she's got some great chewing out over the phone moments again just like Philip Seymour Hoffman, every part that she's in, although she has unlimited role in this, is just so spot on. You know the character that she's playing. You've you've met people <laughs> like her, but there's also this love that kind of sits at the at the bottom of all of the worry that she has, right? Um, and even for the people she doesn't know, like she wants the best for all of these people, and so she thinks she knows the best way out for them or the cleanest way out or whatever. There's a lot of love in what she's, her teaching moments, I guess. Yeah, a lot of love. I'd say a lot of compassion. Uh, She's just a concerned, worried mom that just wants the best for her kid and really everybody. Like, she she is so well-meaning and she's not, she's just like never really bitter or spiteful or you know like she is overbearing but she's angry and and kind of rightly rightfully so i mean her 15 year old kid is on the road with a rock band in the early 70s like no oh, yeah it's nuts <laughs> <laughs> yeah. absolutely just like philip seymour hoffman every line that comes out of her mouth is just perfect it is given yeah. just the right amount of of love she is just a treasure in all things, but she's so great in this movie. I had a happy tears moment. One of the many phone calls, you know, she just says, I miss you and I love you. It's really fantastic. Hey, hey. It's this beautiful, I purple color. I missed the last thing you said. Your aura is purple. I love you. What? Purple. It's purple. Oh, what? Your aura is purple. I miss you and I love you. I love you. And it just broke my heart, man. She is just such a wonderful actress. She has actually several great phone calls with people that aren't her son. Several different people just kind of try to reassure her, hey, you you got a great kid. He really right. respects women. We're taking good care of him. Like, <laughs> um, But the one with Russell I thought was really, really wonderful because she just kind of goes Let's off on him. Hey, Join the hey, circus. listen to me, mister. Your charm doesn't work on me. I'm on to you. Oh, of course you'd like him. Well, yeah. He worships you people. And that's fine by you as long as he helps make you rich. Rich? I don't think so. Listen to we me. Si- He's a smart, good-hearted, 15-year-old kid with infinite potential. This is not some apron-wearing mother you're speaking to. I know all about your Valhalla decadence, and I shouldn't have let him go. He's not ready for your world of compromised values and diminished brain cells that you throw away like confetti. Am I speaking to you clearly? Yes, yes, ma'am. If you break his spirit, harm him in any way, keep him from his chosen profession, which is law, something you may not value, but I do, you will meet the voice at the other end of this telephone and it will not be pretty. Do we understand each other? Uh, yes, ma'am. I didn't ask for this role, but I'll play it. 
Now go do your best. Be bold, the mighty forces will come to your aid. Goethe said that it's not too late for you to become a person of substance, Russell. Please get my son home safely. All right, now go and do your best. And it just, uh, I, I got goosebumps just saying it just now. Like, it's just like so, the Motherly, amount of care right? she has. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, it's just, yeah. Ah, I loved it. Yeah. She's so great. And then and um, everything. She's so great, always and forever. She will never die. <laughs> you know, I, I do think this movie is constantly kind of showing the battle between Philip Seymour Hoffman kind of kind of lays it out for us about the, the what is real versus what is cool, right? And it's funny that Philip Seymour Hoffman kind of lays out this whole movie for us early on. You know, don't make friends with these rock stars. They're going to try to get you drunk, give you drugs, give you girls. Like, you've got to be honest and unmerciful. You and I are uncool. He lays it all out. And then, of course, every all the dominoes fall exactly how one would expect. And, and I right. still loved it pretty much the whole way. <laughs> yeah. Pretty much everybody in this movie, except for Mom and Lester Bangs, and I guess maybe the magazine people, <laughs> are constantly in flux with their persona versus their real identity or who they are or how they feel, right? Right. You've got the band. Of course, you've got Billy Crudup playing Russell Hammond. You've got... Jason Lee, who I think is great as the front man, mm-hmm. he's even got that you know line. They, they're having like a band argument, and because of that, the T-shirt that basically just puts the puts Russell in the forefront, and everybody else is just yeah, like blurred time. out in the background. This is big stuff, man. From the very beginning, we said I'm the front man, and you're the guitarist with Mystique. That's the dynamic we agreed on. They've already discussed and agreed who they are going to project themselves to be right to the world you know definitely russell has kind of a crisis with this halfway through the film that's why they go to that high school party and drinks beer with lsd in it and is going off about how you guys in in topeka you guys are real because he gets obsessed with being real (laughs) right so much of the rock and roll world has become about mystique and what's cool right they just want the journalist to make them look cool and i mean even penny lane who you know that's not even her real name of course and her whole shtick is is an alter ego right like so much of what she's doing i guess is just kind of an act right yeah what's interesting about her is that you see moments of sincerity through all of this right like she her i think relationship with william is definitely sincere and even with music there's a great scene of her dancing on the floor after the show she does have this relationship with fame as all the characters do i think that's a big part of the the film right is just our kind of relationship with fandom and and fame and but she does um have this genuine love for for music it seems and same with the film kind of balances those two things it's like uh it shows us kind of the magic of music um, but also kind of what people can get kind of wrapped up in through these different facades and and what fame can can do to to bands or um to people being kind of attracted to that fame or being around being around it it's funny you use the phrase the magic of music because so much of specifically what penny lane seems to be doing feels like misdirection like she's mm-hmm. a magician of some of some kind mostly with her emotions right like there are many times she's clearly hurt 
but the words that she chooses to say don't convey that. We see it in her face, right? Like the the Kate Hudson is really wonderful conveying the emotion of Penny Lane while yeah. uh, speaking the words of the script. So during the tiny dancer scene, right, is this big jubilant, completely uncool moment, right? Like it's it's nobody is is posturing or pretending they don't like Elton John or Tiny Dance, right? Like, it's it's just a moment of joy and uh, exuberance on screen. There's that moment where William turns to Penny and says, I need to go home, and she kind of does this uh, this little hand gesture, like a, like a ta-da, like a... I have to go home. Count the headlights on the highway You are home. And A, that's that's one of those great one-liners, I think. And I believe that that was a improvised line that was not from the script. And B, uh, she is kind of like this magical rock and roll elf, right? Like, <laughs> right. Even deepens the mystique and the and the um, how tantalizing this world is, especially to a 15-year-old kid who just loves music, right? Yeah, I think without those more genuine kind of sincere moments even even when she's maybe saying one thing but she's showing another in her performance i think without those moments then she kind of becomes this like archetype um and and uh, maybe her character becomes more problematic what is it the uh the the manic pixie dream girl yeah she definitely does kind of fall in into that manic pixie dream girl kind of role where female characters are written in a way to where most of their function in a story is to help a a brooding man young man get through or past something or or learn how to love life or or live to the fullest right i just yeah so i do think one the film i think it spends enough time with her to to give her a little bit more substance than just that although i think that that's a valid observation of her character and then i do think that the like i was saying the sincerity in her performance and relationship with William and with music, I think gives, yeah, I guess just her enough agency or her, her character enough to be set apart from just that type of character. But I understand the, why people would lump her in that category. Maybe. I mean, she goes to Morocco. She fulfills something like a a large part of it is mentoring William and pursuing Russell as, as well as kind of, you know, she sees her role as, a band-aid as I am there to make these rock and roll guys into rock stars. Like I'm there to inspire and not coach them because that's not, but it's like, it's like she's pulling, she's like yeah. milking greatness out of them or something. <laughs> I think there's enough sensitivity in Kate Hudson's performance too that just gives her a real, I don't know, there's a humanity to her character underneath the facade that works. But what else did you like about the movie? Even just right towards the the beginning of the film the, the ramp scene that you mentioned earlier i really love the technical elements of that scene of him kind of going up and down the the ramp and getting kind of pushed and pulled along and the camera moving with him he keeps getting shut out of this uh what seems like this whole other world like it's bright in there it's it's dark outside and kind of 
uh, this ramp is like, is pretty big. So it kind of looms large in the, in the frame. And it, it just seems like whatever world he's entering into is about to be this magical place, but he keeps on getting locked out of it. That's when, obviously when we meet Penny Lane as well. And so, yeah, I, I really just, I like that scene a lot. I feel like watching it this time, the first 30 minutes of this movie is like, just wonderful. I love the family dynamics that they establish leading up to the prophecy. One day you're going to be cool. I just love that line. I think it's so much fun. <laughs> I love how much that honestly that that William and his mom love each other. Yeah. And that's and and she trusts him enough and that's why he gets to go on this crazy fantasy rock and roll adventure, right? Mm-hmm. And then that scene, the ramp scene, is just so great because it's where we meet Penny Lane. It's where we meet the band. I love how he, from the moment they meet him, oh, you're the enemy. You're a journalist. And then all he has to do is stroke their ego for five seconds, and he turns to leave. And they're like, well, wait, man, come on. Like, what else? It's yeah. it's just so exciting. Yeah, like you, I, I really just, I love every moment that Philip Seymour Hoffman's in this film and especially him and William having conversations. There's that uh, scene where he's in the, or he's at the radio station, his body language, the way he kind of handles the record, uh, everything is just so pitch perfect. It's, it's really fun to watch. And then it's, we're 20 years down the line here. Can we do our spoilers? I, yes, we, you can absolutely spoil this. The scene uh, near the end where William kind of reveals to Penny how she's being used and that the way she delivers the what kind of beer line is is just so good. Yeah, so in the previous scene, they have a band manager's poker game. Russell's there, William's there, and they're slinging bets, they're playing cards. They essentially bet the groupies, right? They they offer the the girls to is it Deep Purple, Black Sabbath, Leonard Skinner, one of them. Um yeah. You know, it's this huge betrayal, obviously, because Penny thinks that she and Russell have this real connection, yet they just sold her, essentially, <laughs> to another band for 50 bucks and a case of Heineken. And William finally confronts her and says, like, why do you care so much? Like, they don't respect you. Maybe it is love, as much as it can be for somebody... Who sold you to Humble Pie for 50 bucks and a case of beer? I was there. I was there. The way that she is crying and looks up and smiles through her tears. What kind of beer? You see her like barely hanging on to that smile, right? You see, you can right. see through the cracks, and uh, she delivers it so beautifully. I think a lot of a lot of um, some of the dramatic scenes towards the end of this movie, including that one. The reason that scene is so good is her final that final right. button. This movie is at its best when it's just showing the absolute joy of music and pursuing noble journalism, the Philip Seymour Hoffman stuff and the tiny uh, dancer scene <laughs> the tiny I, I i think of the tiny dancer scene as like an iconic like one of the all-time great film scenes as an expression of joy and it, it kind of i didn't know this but i i guess tiny dancer wasn't that huge of a song for elton john until this movie i didn't know that apparently yeah that's I didn't I didn't realize that either. It is now something that Elton plays at every concert or did. I guess he just retired from from touring, but I feel like everyone in our generation 
kind of knows that song for, yeah. the, uh, oh, yeah. for the most part. For sure. And it's because of this movie, for sure. And it was a huge yeah. emotional moment for me. Yeah, so Cameron Crowe, I feel like across his films, he's really great at music placement, has some great soundtracks, but he just always picks a, a great song for you know the right moment. And so that one's great. I, I really love when the Simon and Garfunkel song plays towards the, the beginning when uh, William's sister's taken off. Yeah, I think he's, he's great at that. And I agree with there's some more dramatic moments that fall a little flatter. I, I do wonder, you know, like one thing I learned too is that there's um, a different cut of this film that's longer and kind of includes some more scenes between Russell and Penny that maybe make their relationship uh, make a little more sense and have a little more weight. But I agree with you that those those highs are, are so great and, and those um, kind of like the scenes that kind of give you that rush, like the some of the scenes of Philip Seymour Hoffman and, and William, and um, of just like of discovery and what's ahead, and and going into new new territory and stuff like that. So in 2000, 20 years ago, this movie was actually kind of a flop at the box office. Like it was not a big film, but I feel like I was ten in twenty or in two thousand, and of course I can remember the nineties, but. Yeah. Like, I feel like Almost Famous has always been there, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so it just oh, yeah. feels like, I don't know if a classic is is too heavy. You know, like, it, it is one of those movies that's just like, some of the scenes, Tiny Dancer's a great one. There's that great scene of Penny Lane dancing on the empty stage. Yeah. But I guess 20 years later, I mean, what is your sense of, of what this movie is by the general public and yourself yeah i think mainly i just i hold it close as just as a fun movie that shares a love for music you know or that that i share a love of music with and i think that's why it's special i mean i think there's some great performances and and in here and some kind of iconic scenes but in terms of like classic films i don't i don't necessarily think of this um as one of it but i i definitely do think of it as having a lot of really fun elements and and something that's easy to return to and a nice like i don't know that that whole you know early 70s rock scene and just the idea of journalists going on the road with these big bands and stuff just like doesn't happen anymore so it's kind of a or just a cool snapshot of what some of these these journalists kind of experienced during that time and and just a a picture of, of rock and roll in the in that time period so it is a fun watch, right? I mean, it's just a fun movie. There's some gross kind of stuff that didn't really age well. <laughs> right. But it but feels pretty accurate to the 1970s. Yeah. So that maybe holds it back a little bit. But overall, like, it, it is just kind of a fun ride beginning to end. And, and some of the highs, I think, just soar. I, again, I, I just, I love that tiny dancer scene. It, it just... Uh, is kind of transcendent for me. Speaking of happy tears, so we kind of mentioned that that Rolling Stone did a like a Zoom chat with Cameron Crowe and a couple of the actors, and he tells the story of Philip Seymour Hoffman. They had shot the movie. Cameron Crowe showed a cut of it to PSH. I guess uh, Hoffman was in a uh, was doing a some theater at the time. He said, "Hey, come see my play." Cameron Crowe goes to the show says it's amazing goes backstage to see Hoffman and there's a bunch of people backstage and he essentially pulls him aside to his dressing room tells Cameron Crowe 
I loved your movie. That's it. Like that's all I wanted to tell you. And yeah. on that on that video, Cameron Crowe has a bit of a happy tears moment, and that was really oh wonderful. yeah, yeah, it's great. Yeah, because it it the way he he um kind of lays it out is that it that he invites him to that show kind of just just for that moment that remains a really special moment for Cameron Crowe and, and because you know Phil Hoffman was not on on set much and didn't get to interact with a ton of the other the other actors too much but but yeah that was a really really sweet story but uh, yeah totally agree with the how like seeing how those actors loved being on set um and their fondness for the recording uh or, or the filming it just it seemed it seemed like you could see that in there in the, the you know in the film and you kind of share that um that spirit <laughs> great spirit it's a great spirit uh, yeah and, and then the other the other video i think that you pointed me toward was the uh there was a video of cameron crow i guess at his home kind of unboxing some old some of them are props from the movie. Uh, some are things that inspired the movie, right? Stuff from his mm-hmm. journalism career that the movie was based on. And so, and he's like telling stories about things that inspired the film and then telling stories about, you know, behind the scenes kind of set stories. It's, it's a really great like 20 minute video on YouTube. Yep. And I think those are both on uh, Rolling Stone's YouTube channel. So any, any other happy tears or... Um, let's see. We I've we got... covered many of them in our discussion today, so. Yeah, uh, let's see. Quick rundown off the top of my brain. Just seeing Philip Seymour Hoffman, happy tears. Uh, I love you and I miss you, happy tear. What kind of beer, happy tear. Penny Lane dancing on the empty stage, emotional, not quite a happy tear. I guess we call it a close call. <laughs> yeah. So in the other cut of this, that I guess that's an, um, that scene is extended. And so maybe maybe it would have gone into a happy tear if you if you watch the other the other cut, which the, I think we should uh, yeah. both do it. I, I would love to watch um, that cut. It is it's got like forty extra minutes of movie, so um, yeah, we'll do it. Sweet homework assignment. What about you? Any other any other emotional moments? No, just the ones yeah that we covered. Just that uh, the the what kind of beer, and then the the early scene of, of Zoe Deschanel's character um, giving her her record collection over to William. Yeah, that's great. And, you know, one thing I do love, especially something you get on an anniversary like this with some of the content that we see, like, on YouTube. And did you watch the Rolling Stone group chat or whatever? Yeah, yeah. The the amount of love that all the people that made this film have for it. Yeah. I mean, of course, Cameron Crowe, who this is a somewhat of a autobiographical thing for him, so obviously it's personal for him. Right. But, but all of the... the the actors, like the lead actors, uh, just absolutely adore this movie. You can tell by the way that they talk, the way they interact with each other, and the amount of love that they have both for this movie but also for what it represents, the way that we we love music and movies and, and kind of art, just like everything that we do with this podcast. It's got a really wonderful spirit, I guess, and, and yeah, I love it. Agreed. Great spirit. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> Agreed, great spirit. <laughs> Put that on the poster. <laughs> oh, I have to go home. Count the headlights on the highway. Well, um, at the end of the podcast, it's recommendation time, baby. So, Brandon, I don't know if you've looked at your phone in the last 20 minutes, 
News just broke that Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg has died at the age of 87. Oh, wow. I did so, not see that. Yeah, I, I, well, I literally read it while you went to the bathroom. Jeez. And so my recommendation is to watch the wonderful documentary mm. RBG on Hulu. It's about the legend, the woman, the myth, the legend, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, a giant in our political system and in our culture, and she will be missed. Wow. Sorry well, to drop that bomb on you. No, it's all right. Um, my my recommendation this week is a book that I've been or that I finished. It's called Playing Changes: Jazz for the New Century by Nate Chinnon. It's really cool. It's a if you're somewhat into jazz, I think it's an, another. It's a great picture of what the like 21st century of jazz is or like and where it came from and the kind of different groups and styles and and schools um that i had some familiarity with but uh it definitely dives into different scenes and i think it's it's really fun and talks about some people we've talked about on here before but one one section in particular i thought was really was really fun because of our our last podcast episodes of uh fiona apple where it talks about brad meldow who's a pianist and there's a whole section here about him on the John Bryan show because John Bryan uh, produced a couple of, of his records. But there's a section here that mentions Fiona Apple and Brad Meldow at Largo and the John Bryan show and that it was produced by P.T. Anderson produced that that show, which I didn't realize because it was kind of like it was rejected by VH1 and P.T. Anderson just kind of like picked it up and did his own little, <laughs> took his own wow. crack at it, which I think is cool and I didn't know. And then it talks about the Brad Melda video with Elliot Smith, which I had just watched when we were talking for our, our uh, podcast earlier. So it was a really fun connection that just happened like a few days after we recorded. So that is great. The two um, albums that John Bryan produced for Brad Melda are Largo and Highway Rider. And I recommend both of those. So... If you don't get around to the book, you can hear some of the John Bryan production ideas on those albums. Go check those things out. Thank you for listening to Happy Tears. Happy Tears is produced by Nick Melita and Brandon Henry. You can get more information as well as this episode's episodes, as well as this episode's show notes at happytearspod.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Happy Tears Pod. You can follow us on Instagram at Happy Tears Podcast. You can like our Facebook page, Happy Tears Podcast. You can also leave us a five-star review or whatever number of stars you think we've earned at Apple Podcasts. Original theme music by Homage. You can find more of his music at youtube.com slash homage beats or on instagram at homage beats we've got a nice little playlist on spotify called happy tears mixtape we update that weekly consists of a lot of music that we talk about on this show and some other recommendations that we have so go check it out do you think Stillwater's music is on spotify (laughs) that would be wild Uh, The Almost Famous soundtrack is on Spotify, and I believe Fever Dog by Stillwater. So that's going on the playlist for (laughs) sure. All right, Fever Dog it is. That's all for this episode of Happy Tears. All right. Farewell. Farewell!